listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. In the book of Ecclesiastes, please take your Bible and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we have been in this book for three weeks now. And I, I just want to be honest with you for a minute here about this. For me personally, this has been really, really good for me personally. It's also been really hard. It's been hard to actually prepare and deliver a message in Ecclesiastes. And there's a lot of things that have contributed to that. But in these, in these first three chapters... Uh, I have felt myself a little, a little crammed, a little uh, busy, maybe not as like logically tight as I wanted it to be, not as clear as I wanted it to be. Overall, I just haven't communicated in a way that I've been satisfied with, to be fully transparent with you. And I know we've all been learning things, and I really appreciate those of you who have come to me and you've, you know, we've had some really good conversations. God has... God has taught you things about himself and that you haven't really seen the scripture before in, in yourself as well. But I know that just by preaching in these first three chapters for these first three weeks, you know, life can be really hard and it can be really good at the same time. I've seen that even in Ecclesiastes. Um, so up to this point, it's been, it's been challenging to present the truths that I want to present to you. And a big part in that is what I talked about all the way back in chapter one. This is a very eclectic book. Solomon is going all over the map. Uh, it's so unique. There's not a lot of books of the Bible like this. And, and it's so eclectic that a lot of Christians don't always give this book a lot of time because it can get confusing. It's hard to understand in some places. And so you just think, all right, I'm going to move on to something that I, that I understand and that it has structure that I like. <clears throat> now, it would be way easier if we were just to preach a one or two part series, one or two sermons, sum it all up like in chapter 12, put a big bow on it. But we're not doing that in this series. We're not doing that because the Lord has clearly led me to take a dive, take a slow walk, through this book. And so, yeah, it's challenging for me. It's been challenging for, for all of us, but we're letting this hang. And I want us to get into some of the more therapeutic, some of the psychological aspects of it all that we see when you really dive deep and walk slowly through a book like this. Because I feel like that's exactly what our church needs right now. Because a lot of us are in that world and in, 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 a, in a season of life that just feels a lot like Ecclesiastes. Nothing is really adding up. I know you need it, and I know I need it myself. So that's why we're here. I'm very much like the Proverbs type person. If you remember back to, to week one, where we, where we contrasted the difference between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I'm the type of person who likes the logical concepts that add up and work out the way they're supposed to do. I like it when two plus two equals four. But Ecclesiastes is not Proverbs, and this is totally different. In this book, it's like two plus two equals five minus one 
plus 16 divided by 5. Okay? And those of you who are really good at math, did you check me on that? You, you follow that one? No, but that's, that's the way life works a lot of times. And that's the, what, what we see through a lot of it, facets of life. I've, I talked with Beckham this week about my, my son Beckham. He's 10 years old. He loves soccer. And I talked to him about becoming a better soccer player. I was like, all right, well, Beckham, it's really not that complicated. You know, you want to you wanna get in shape. You want to be better at soccer. Eat healthy. Train hard. And also learn from your mistakes, because everybody's making mistakes all the time, so, so learn through your mistakes. And you put those things together, the, the physical and the mental side of it, and you mix that with hard work, you will get better. You know, that's the way it should work, right, in the lab. But even on the soccer field, and just like any sport, it's not like you're just at the combine and two plus two equals four. No, it's actually two plus two equals five minus one, plus 16 divided by five. Like you have all these factors that come into play, right? Uh, you know, you have coaches' decisions. You have referees, referees' calls. You have your own personal life. You have things that are going on in your life that will affect your mentality. So it's not just an absolute easy spectrum where everything just works out linear the way it's supposed to work out. That's also real life. And what we've seen so far is there is a season for everything. And at the same time, God has made everything perfect in its time. So while we're down here under the sun, everything doesn't work out the way we want it to. And as I felt myself, and I'm learning as I preach this, this is good for me, we have to be okay with the uncomfortableness. We have to learn to trust God and to see him better even when it does not add up and it's not going the way I want it to go. It's not going the way it should go. Isn't this what God promised me? It's not happening. I don't see it happening right now, at least. That's Ecclesiastes. And I know myself, I like to be positive. I know many of you like to be positive. But life is sometimes a grind. And many times it is confusing. So for all of you who are with me in that place, we're here, chapter 4, we have a lot more to learn. So follow along with me as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This will be our passage for today. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more unfortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also a vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? 
This is also a vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cold, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Through his own kingdom, he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also a vanity and a striving after the wind. So what do you make of all of this? Pretty heavy, te- pretty heavy text. Anybody want to just come on up here and, and tell me in like one sentence what the main point of this chapter is? Anyone want to do that? Any volunteers? Pretty heavy stuff. And I know some of us are just uncomfortable reading these verses. Some of you are like actually interested right now just to see where we're going to go with this chapter of the Bible. You know, some passages of Scripture are powerful. They're, 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 they're easy to understand what God is saying because they're so encouraging. They're so clear. Not so with, with some of these chapters in Ecclesiastes. This is one of those texts that you would never, ever preach from unless you were going verse by verse through a book like we are right now. And what did we just read? Well, let me give you a two-minute breakdown of what I do in a situation like this. And when you read from Scripture yourself, I would encourage you to do the same thing. If you read something in the Bible and you're just like, I don't know what I can do with this or what to make of this, here's a good place to start. Ask the question, what does it say about God? It's a great question to ask. You know, because we're, we always need to be reminded about God's character, of who he is, his truth, his justice, his mercy. And when we look at God and when we, and we read in scripture, oh, this is the truth about God. You know, he sacrificed his life for me on the cross. Wow, I've received mercy. Wow, like when you see that and you contrast it with yourself, it's convicting. It, it shows us how we can actually... Um, walk towards God and lean into him so we can become more like Jesus Christ? It's a great question to ask. What does it say about God? Where are the deficiencies in my heart that are, not, that are not there yet? Well, question for you. Did you see God at all, anything about God in chapter four? No. No, you didn't. We got crickets here. Like, God is not really mentioned in this chapter. What about Jesus Christ? Let's go there. (laughs) Do you see Jesus in this chapter? That's why it's hard to preach from a chapter like this. We don't see God, and we don't even see Jesus Christ yet. Okay, so if we can't go there, what else are we supposed to do? This isn't a narrative telling a story that I can learn from and apply directly to my life in a tangible way. 
So what are we to make of a chapter like this? Well, the next thing you can do, and the only other thing you can really do, is look closely for any hooks in what he's writing. And this is wisdom literature, right? Like this is kind of like poetry. So you have to really, and I mean, some of you are the English people who love to read poetry, and I know some of you are. So you look for what is, what is standing out? Like, where's the emphasis? What is he saying here that just, you have to, I have to stop and think for a second. And if you look again with me at verse one, what stands out about verse one? And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Notice we have our first repetition, and that always means emphasis. So there's something that we can go by. So uh, in verse 1, we have, there's no comforter for the oppressed. Skip down to verse 8, and you can look at that verse again, and you can catch another theme that, that matches the no comforter theme, and that's, there's no companion. And then if you go all the way down to the rest of the, the rest of the chapter in verse 16, and you see this, this is a sad story here about this, this king who could not take advice. But in verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also a vanity and a striving after the wind. And what we have here in verse 16 is no continuity. So you take all three of these things together. No comforter, no, com no companion, no continuity. And what are we left with? <clears throat> Solomon in this chapter is talking about the emptiness of being lonely. And there's a lot of people today who are lonely. I'm calling this message a catalog of loneliness. And what we have here are the descriptions of many people's nightmare situation, the place they never want to find themselves in, but nevertheless, the place a lot of people do end up finding themselves in. The profiles of all the lonely people. And I realize that's probably not what you wanted to hear when you came in today. You wanted to sing some songs to God and, and hear an encouraging, powerful, clear sermon about the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to get there. We've already sung about that. But we're going to spend some time right now in a chapter that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and seems pretty heavy and negative. Ecclesiastes 4. Why are there so many lonely people in our world today? People who are in denial about the, their own loneliness. I mean, we are busier than ever before. We're surrounded by people like never before. Just look at the traffic out here. Like there's more and more people moving into the upstate of South Carolina. There's plenty of people. We have devices hooked up to us on our, on our hips, in our pockets. You, you, we've never been more connected with knowing what's going on with people without even talking to people, right? Yet we are still as a society, as a whole, lonelier than we've ever been. People are lacking community like they have, they, they, like they never really have to that extent in, in a long time. So if you, are, if you know, all right, 
I am lonely. I'm really glad this passage has something to say. I hope it's not going to be too depressing for me. I hope it's hope, hopeful. It is. Buckle up. This, this passage is for you. Maybe you don't feel lonely right now. And you're thinking, yeah, this isn't for me. Those, those poor people who feel lonely, like seriously, just go get a job, get a hobby, get busy. Come on, come on, just do something with your life. You don't have to be lonely. What's, what's your problem? We don't, we don't say that to their face, but that's kind of what you're thinking, right? Even for you, I would say buckle up. Because there's some profiles here of loneliness that you can find yourself in because you're potentially even on a trajectory of that loneliness and you don't even realize it yet. So look with me back at verses one through three. This is where we see our first profile of a lonely person. And this is the oppressed victim. This is a heavy one. Now, for most of us, you would never want to put yourself in any of these categories. I'm going to tell you, in this chapter, there are four profiles of loneliness. Um, and as we progress along through the chapter, I would say it actually gets harder and harder to admit that you're in that, in that category, in that profile. Now, you can't really check me on that yet because you haven't even seen all four profiles yet. So, you know, you can make the decision for yourself at the end of the message. But here in this very first one, I would say this is actually the easiest one to identify, the oppressed victim. And part of that is because we actually live in a society now that for, you know, for various reasons, none of them really good, but we have like almost elevated this victim status mentality to where if you are a victim of something, you get more attention, you get more sympathy, you get a platform. So we have a lot of people who are just told, you're a victim, you're a victim, and they just make that their identity, and there's all kinds of bad consequences that come with that. You don't move on from that. You don't find hope in that and, and healing in that through Jesus Christ. Um, so maybe that's why this is one of the, one of the, one of the categories and the profiles that's so easy to identify. And, uh, and we're not going to really talk about that. That's kind of beside the point. But what Solomon is pointing out here is something that is very true. And I mean, no one would argue with this. There are oppressed people out here where the authority structure of their life, there's a powerful person who has taken advantage of them. And that is so wrong. And it is so wicked. It goes against everything about what God has established authority to be. God is our ultimate authority. He is good. He is the ultimate ruler. He is supreme and he is gracious. He is tender. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is just. But we have in this fallen world, in this Ecclesiastes under the sun life that we all live, there are authority structures that oppress people and create victims. And that is a travesty. It's not always going to be like that. When, when you look to God and you find, you find life in him and a relationship with him, one day we will find peace and joy. But unfortunately, life under the sun, we have this. This is a very real thing. So there are true victims, like this passage is talking about. These people are all around us. 
<coughs> excuse me. And what Solomon says here is, what, is the same thing many, many of you have thought, many of you who have been taken advantage of. Even in the room this size, we have people who have thought, it would be better off if I was just gone. If I was not even here, I'd be better off dead. And I know it just got really quiet in here. This is in the Bible. A lot of us have that feeling, right? We've had that in the past. And just like this text says, you look at the kids who haven't experienced the misfortune and the heartache and they have no idea how hard it's going to be and what they're in for down the road. And sometimes we look at those little kids, and we have a lot of beautiful kids in this church. And you look at them and you think, oh, my goodness, they have no idea how cruel this world can be. I want to just protect them from that. And they're better off because they haven't felt that yet. Well, there's a lot of people down here duking it out laboring through life under the sun and they don't know God and all they have is loneliness and they look to all the wrong things to fill that. We're going to leave that hanging for a little while and we're going to go on to our next profile of loneliness that's found in verses four through six. This is the second point today. This is the stressed laborer. Now this is pretty bad. It's not as sad maybe as the last one, but it's still pretty devastating, honestly. It can be very debilitating. And as our country slips further and further away from our founding principles that made it great and the morals and the character and the people that built it based off of faith, as morals crumble, we feel the effects of that in our society. Our economy, you know, is still probably the best in the world. But if you were to compare it to what it was even a few years ago, it's not good, to say the least. And praise God, some of us out here are still doing very well. Praise God. But the honest truth is not very many men and women, you know, my age and younger, are doing better than their parents were. And that's actually wild because this is the first time that's ever happened in our country where the next generation has had it harder and to scrape by than their parents' generation. Because up until this point, it's gotten better and better for every single generation. And yeah, we're, we're feeling pretty good, even though it's, it's tight right now for most people. It is, it is rough out there economically. Inflation is bad. And despite the quality going down and corners being cut everywhere and service going down constantly, wages are still stagnant for the vast majority of people. So in many ways, our country is in a decline economically, which makes it very hard for a lot of people. And there's a lot of people who are stuck with really bad jobs. The job's not paying what it should be paying or they're working terrible hours they're working themselves to death, and there's just a lot of that painful, painfulness under the sun right here, even that we're feeling in America. So you have that, and then you have the other side of that, which is spelled out in this passage, and that's that the toil and skill and work come 
not because I want to glorify God. What does it say there? It comes from man's envy of his neighbor. Okay, so that's not great. But anyone who's intellectually honest knows, hey, capitalism works. <laughs> it does. There's a beautiful side of that where I'm going to work hard, provide, like be blessed. More, you know, I'll work harder because I'm going to receive more. And uh, there's also, there's a good side of that. There's also a pretty ugly side of that. Crony capitalism, where you take advantage of people, you push hard, you, you use people to benefit yourself. And, uh, and, and we all see this. And in one sense, you know, like high water, you know, raises all ships. So like a lot of us have actually felt the benefits, you know, after, after a few centuries of, of envy of neighbor, things have actually gotten better and, and lifted up. We've all been secondhand recipients of that, but it always comes with a cost. Greed, entering the equation, pride, one-upmanship, envy. What is Solomon saying about all of that? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. We tear each other up, even to the point where we eat ourselves alive sometimes. You overwork yourself. You work yourself to death. You can't even enjoy what you've earned. You see what Solomon is saying here? It's foolish to be a workaholic. I got to make as much as possible. I'm going to pull everyone else down so I can rise up to the top. You devour your own, and in the end, you just have more problems. Talk to any businessman or businesswoman, and they will tell you more money equals more problems. More people equal more problems. What is Solomon saying about that? Better is a handful of quiet, <coughs> excuse me, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of striving after the wind. This is all vanity, right? And this is just a secondary application to the overall chapter but please don't miss this. You can gain all of this stuff to the point that you just ignore what I really need. And what are you left with? You're left with more pain, even loneliness. So all you really need to do, are you listening? Is provide for your family. Make enough so that you can bless others, save but you don't have to have everything. And that goes against the American dream, right? But you don't have to have more. So keeping up with the Joneses is not the answer. Enjoy your life and your family. You know? I mean, keeping up with the Joneses? You don't even like the Joneses, and the Joneses don't even like you. Except for, except for Matt and Carly. We all love Matt and Carly. And, and Carter. And, uh, yeah. that, those, those Joneses love you. But, but you know what I mean. I mean, we're trying to please these people and impress these people who don't even care. So I, I would say this line here almost sounds a little Proverbs-esque. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. In the end, it's all about 
relationships, with friends and family that bring joy. And you can climb to the top, but it gets really lonely at the top. Here's the third profile of loneliness, verses 7 and 8. The unsatisfied success story. Look at these verses again with me. Verse, verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also a vanity and an unhappy business. I like to think about this one as the house that is too big for one. Have you ever seen this in our country? You have this ginormous house. This person has made so much money and now they're divorced and they don't have anyone else living in the house with them. And you have one person living in way too many square feet for them to even clean or even enjoy or even be in. And they live in like 12% of the home and the rest of it just kind of wastes away. And they spent years of their life not having relationships with people so they could get this house and now they're alone in this house all by themselves. That's really sad. It's very, very sad. You probably know someone like this. I think we all do. I certainly do. People who are in the twilight of their life they should be enjoying it with friends and church community and family and kids and grandkids. But they've pushed those people away because of decisions they've made. And I know this is probably hitting home to a lot of us right now. It's hard to see that to someone that you love, to see them do that and to you to be the recipient of feeling that. I've seen this in my own family. Um, I have an uncle who passed away a few years ago, tragically, um, very quickly, and he was a multimillionaire. He loved his family. He was very good to his family. He blessed us, and we loved him. I mean, he was divorced, though, and he lived alone, and he had more money than he knew what to do with. He had five homes, and he built another ridiculously elaborate home. And those homes are all sitting empty, even to this day. You have this all over our country. You have empty homes and empty people. Where has it gotten us? All the money, everything I want, where, do, where does it leave you? Having a, success, having a successful career doesn't automatically mean you're going to be satisfied. There's got to be more associated with it for it to bring you satisfaction. And there are far too many people living just like this. This is nothing new under the sun. Solomon saw the same thing 3,000 years ago. He's got wealth, but there's no one left to spend it on. Some of us are thinking, well, that might be a nice problem to have. I wish I had had some money to spend. But here's the thing. If you're just spending it on yourself, that's not going to make you happy for very long. Not at all. Something I stumbled upon this week, and, and I, was, I was just reading and, you know, reading a few things, and I came across this phenomenon in our country called gray divorce. And it's the number of people 
who are getting divorced after they turn 55 has absolutely skyrocketed in our nation. <clears throat> in our country, we've never seen anything like it. And actually, people are talking about it now because it's going to really shake things up culturally and economically. Uh, why, why are there so many people in their older years not spending time with family, not living with the spouse that they spent 20, 30 years with? Like, what is the root of that? And even these secular articles that I was reading about gray divorce, they were going into all the reasons. Yeah, you know, uh, the husband and wife, they grew separate ideologically, you know, politically. One was conservative, one wasn't. That's been a big factor. They have more money now. They think they have more money at least until they actually split in half and they split the retirement in half. <coughs> Excuse me. But you have this large demographic of older people who are now living alone. And it's a lot harder than they thought it would be. A lot harder than they thought it would be. And I've read the articles. Even the secular person writing the article, you can clearly see, as clear as day, it's, it's literally like a, like a Carolina Gamecock fan wearing maroon, like in a sea of orange at Death Valley, just sticks out, right? The reason this is happening to so many people is because of selfishness. Now, I know divorce is a sensitive topic, and I know there's... There are actually legitimate reasons sometimes to get divorced. If, if the covenant of marriage that God has established is repeatedly broken, that grieves God so much, I believe. He does not want that marriage just to go on when it is in an abusive and it's a terrible situation that, that just eats you alive. Emotionally, physically, like... It, there, are, there, is a, there is a time to legitimately, uh, even though it, it breaks God's heart, there is a time for that marriage to end, and, and hopefully it will be restored one day. Uh, but all that being said, a lot of times people get divorced today, not all the time, but many times, because they just want to live their own life and do their own thing, and they don't want to sacrifice for someone else anymore. They're tired of it. And that's a travesty because it doesn't fulfill you like you think it will. You actually become more lonely than you even were before. And here's your end result of, of just, just searching your own, for your own wishes. You think getting what I want will make me happy. It doesn't make you happy. And that is because something that we touched on last week, and we're going to see it again here, Things don't enhance your satisfaction in life. Relationships do. Relationships do. It's not the stuff that satisfies you. And there's nothing wrong with earning money and saving money and enjoying the blessings that God has given to you. Absolutely do all of that. Just don't let those possessions take the place of the most important people in your life. And if you right now are tempted to go after someone else that's going to actually hurt all the other loved ones in your life, you need to think twice about that. Because you can actually make a selfish decision and choose something for yourself and in effect 
wound all of the other people around you relationally. And it creates loneliness. You don't get what you want. And I mean, we've, we can easily see that in others, but we need to remember not to repeat the same mistake. The next profile of loneliness is found in verses 13 through 16. So take a look at that with me. Point four, this is the threatened has been. And this is why I told you up top, it gets harder and harder to admit you're in any one of these categories, especially this last one, all right? These, these are the lonely people who are lacking self-awareness to the point that they are in denial. Usually it's because their entire identity is wrapped up in their title or in their position. But what a sad place to be here. And like this passage says, I mean, Solomon is describing it perfectly. This is the person that usually came from the bottom. They crawled their way out of the gutter to the top. And they know they have a bunch of people that are clawing at trying to get to their spot on top of the mountain. And they don't want to let it go. And the saddest part of all of this is they can't see that it's time to just hand it off, move on, and enjoy life for a change. This person isn't as sharp as they used to be because of years of like looking over their shoulder at everyone else. Has them paranoid or bitter or both. And this is the easiest profile of loneliness to spot, but it's the hardest person to talk to about it. Everyone else can see it, but them. And they've insulated themselves to the point that no one can dare even initiate a conversation or hint at it because they'll get offended. And here's another painful part about their lonely life. Everyone wants them gone. Man, this is sad. People are just waiting for them to kick it and then have a party at their demise. What a sad existence. The king who no longer knew how to take advice. And it's depressing to think about this state. No one wants to be this person. Yet a lot of people live their life as if that's who they are trying to become without realizing the fruit of what that leads to. You see it in other people, yet it still ends up happening to them. That's the fourth profile of loneliness right there. Whew. Is that heavy enough for everyone? Well, I have good news for you. We're not done today. Even though we came to the end of verse 16, we're actually not done. Maybe you noticed I skipped a few verses. Go back with me and read verses 9 through 12. And I cannot tell you why Solomon uh, wrote it out the way he did. No one knows. You can maybe ask him in heaven one day. But look at verses 9 through 12. We have some light at the end of the tunnel here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
If you had any doubt that this chapter is about a catalog of loneliness, I hope this lays it to rest right here. And Solomon gives us some great examples and <laughs> in, in, in proofs of, of why you don't need to be the lone ranger out there. You, you, you don't need that. You can't be that. And this chapter ends the same way I ended the last message. The people with, with the most fulfilled lives are the ones with the most satisfying relationships. That need, that's where you need to put your attention. Because things will leave you lonely. I mean, pets are pretty good. They help. I would agree with that. But nothing replaces companionship. Having a group of people who can look you in the eye, who you can talk with, who you can cry with, who you can dance with, who you can just get things off your chest, who can actually tell you what you don't want to hear but need to hear. You need those relationships. And the only companionship that can quench that God-given feeling of togetherness that we all crave is ultimately found in God himself. Now, a lot of us don't want to admit this, you know, and I get it. Some people, they have to be around people. Some people don't have to be around people, okay? We, we've talked about this many times. Those of you, you know, we, we all know, you, everybody has different personalities. Some of you, you just get alone and you don't have to be with people. You need to recharge solo. I get that too. But we're talking about the big picture here. You are created as a relational being because you are created in God's image. Ever wonder why we're all relational and why those relationships matter so much? Think about before God even created the earth. God existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. They were in relation with one another. And we are made in his image to be relational. We need companionship. We do. And I know this is, this one hits hard for a lot of people because we all crave it and some of us don't feel like we have it the way we wish we did. The world is full of lonely people. Worship team, you can come up here, but this is, this is where we're going to close today because this is the final application for all of us. You have to find community. God does not want you to be lonely. And some of us who are feeling lonely right now, you need to realize part of the reason I'm lonely is because I have not, perhaps, this is for some of you, not everybody, but perhaps I haven't put myself out there like I, sh like I should to make friends. Something else Solomon said in his other book, he who has friends must show himself friendly, right? Like it, it, it is a two-way street. You can't just expect everyone to be there for you at all times and to do everything for you. No, you have to put yourself out there. But there's a lot of people who, because of selfishness, retreat into their own life. 
They don't value relationships and they go their own way. Have we not just seen where that road ends? In the catalog, in the profiles of all these lonely people? Well, here's the other side of it. You crave this. No one's vibing with you. No one's there to hang. You know what else you can do? Here's a foolproof solution. You can get out there and you can love someone else. You can, you can actually minister to someone who needs love. We can all do that. It may even be somebody who's not exactly in your stage of life. Maybe there's a, sta a stage of life below you or, or a couple steps behind you. And those people are craving community. They're craving someone to show them care and compassion and concern. And this is the way life works. You show that to someone else, all of a sudden, I don't feel lonely. I feel, I feel actually refreshed. I feel satisfied because I have actually been there for someone else. And then that opens up so many more doors. Pour into a relationship with a hungry person who needs someone to love them. That's going to that's gonna do just what the doctor ordered. Now, this is a hard stage of life to be in, a lonely stage of life. I get that. God doesn't want you to be lonely. You don't want to be lonely. We don't want you to be lonely. So I think when you add all those three things together, there is a way to figure that out. And ultimately, it comes down to the last thing that I want you to see today. It's really the pinnacle of this whole chapter. It's this phrase, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is a hidden gem of a line from Solomon. Think about a threefold cord. You know, you can get that like really cheap twine that like ties something up. Have anyone ever tried to like tie something down with the really cheap stuff and it just like snaps as soon as you go down the road? Like that's a bad feeling. A real rope wound up three, three of those strands all wound together. That, that creates something very tight and very strong, right? Now, I'm not a person who wants to spiritualize everything in scripture, of course not. You can get yourself in really big trouble that way. But I have, I I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. We've sung about Jesus Christ. We're gonna sing about Jesus Christ in a minute. We're talking about finding peace. We're, fi we're talking about finding hope in a relationship. And I don't know what Solomon was thinking. Maybe he was just saying a threefold cord is not quickly broken because he was talking about how you can withstand people who are against you and all of that stuff. But you know where my mind goes here? My mind goes to Jesus Christ. You can have a relationship with someone and that person can disappoint you. You can, you can have a family member who loves you and that family member still hurt you. You need those relationships, relationships with people. But a threefold, threefold cord is absolutely, ultimately, what you really, really need. And let's just put this into perspective. What does a relationship look like that is centered on Jesus Christ? 
What if the relationship isn't just centered on the football team or the hobby or the music, the band that, that has a run for 10 years and then it's gone? Or like, what if that person who loves the same thing you loved also disagrees with you and walks away from you? You need a threefold cord. You need a relationship that is bound together through the love of God that is centered on Jesus Christ. And another thing that, that I think about, where my mind goes with this, a lot of times we, we hear this, this phrase in weddings, right? And whenever I'm premarital counseling or you know counseling someone who's married, like you think of that triangle, it's such a basic but very practical illustration. You have a husband and a wife. You have, you have this couple, right? Both at the bottom. And you have God at the top. And the closer you get to God, the closer you get to each other. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need Jesus in our relationships. We need to center our hopes and our dreams not on what can I get? What is this stuff that I want? That will, feel you em- that, that will leave you empty and it will leave you feeling very lonely. What you need is a relationship with other people and you need to show the love of Jesus. You need to receive the love of Jesus. You need God. You need a relationship with him. And the biggest takeaway from this entire chapter is Loneliness is very common. It's very easy to fall into. And the ultimate solution to all of that, all of these profiles of loneliness, the ultimate answer is Jesus. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He sacrificed his life on the cross to restore the relationship that was broken with God. And through Jesus, you can walk with God and you can have hope you can have joy and you can have fulfilling relationships have relationships with others find a companion but above all love Jesus and walk with Jesus Christ about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.